Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Good morning and yes, you're on Dirt Radio. I'm Sam and I'm hosting you for today. I'm going to continue my series on the people behind the activists. So trying to get behind what motivates people, inspires them, sustains them, and even what depresses them. And today's guest is the legendary June Norman, long-time environmental and peace activist. She's a mother of five, a grandmother of eight, and a great-grandmother of three. She was the first person in Australia to be arrested for taking direct action against gas fracking. Uh, but it wasn't until her 60s that she actually got active as an activist. So we're going to find out what happened in her life and what motivated her to uh, become active. And uh, June and I were lucky enough to uh, spend some time together in Paris with Wacker and the Climate Angels. And most recently I ran into her, of course, up at Break Free in Newcastle where a bunch of us, 66 of us, were arrested in the process of shutting down the biggest coal port in the world as part of that global wave of action. June's specialty, though, is actually walking. She can walk, I can tell you that, from being in Paris. And uh, from all of the work that she's done, both for a nuclear-free sustainable future, along to uh, walking for the reef to raise attention for the Great Barrier Reef, which she did, I think, in 2013, uh, she, in 2014, received a United Nations Association of Australia Award for her community commitment to world peace and the environment. June is an extraordinary woman. I'm going to bring her online now. And uh, let's see if we've got June there. June, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Sam. Hello, June. Thanks for joining me this morning. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So, June, I'm... Uh, have read out, as you may have heard, some of the amazing things you've done. And um, you're a complete inspiration to me and many other women uh, activists around Australia. I know that. But I, I don't want to talk so much about all the activism you've done today. I want to talk about what motivated and inspired you to get there and how you got there. And, you know, I, I wanted to start by asking what it was like for you growing up. Were your parents political uh, how, what was what was it like in your household um, around politics and the environment and things like that? Well, Sam, I suppose because it's such a long time ago, um, <laughs> and I was brought up by my grandmother, and uh, it was most mostly a female household, a mostly elderly household, and politics and religion were never discussed in any way whatsoever. Mm. So I was completely ignorant of both of those, well, not of religion, but certainly of politics and the environment. And I don't think the environment was even talked about anywhere back then, certainly Mm. not in the area I was in. So you got married quite young as well. How old were you when you got married? 
I got married on my 19th birthday. Um, I left school at 15 because being country, uneducated, um, fairly poor family, it was you don't educate a girl because they're expected to get married and have children. And, um, yes, so, and that's exactly what I did. I got married and I had children. And I stayed at home and looked after those children because that's what a good little girl did back in those days. Yeah. And how did how did you feel about that? Like, I, I know that I, I have three children and I struggled even as, as a supposed, you know, liberated uh, woman Um I really struggled with the the sort of confinement that comes with mothering, especially when, when they're really, really little. And I wanted to be out and be active because I was already active. What, what kind of, um, I don't know, kind of mental state did you have around being at home with kids? Was it something that you enjoyed or were you always kind of, I don't know, a bit like me, wishing you were somewhere else occasionally? No, I never, never did because I never had a social life. Um, back then anyway, and um, I didn't have any great expectations. I was very well trained, I suppose, to be, to be sat in the corner and children are seen and not heard. And and I, as I say, I was a very little girl, a good little girl, and I did those things. So I was very, very fulfilled as a mother. I had three children in three years, so naturally I had plenty to do. Um, yes. As I grew older, I was fully involved in the school. I was part of, you know, the, the tuck shop, the library, all of those things. So I was always, and taking them to all their sporting activities. Mm. And so that kept me when they were young, very fulfilled and, and happy and contented. And what what about your relationship? I mean, you know, you don't have to tell all our listeners all the details, but, you know, I know you and I have talked about your relationship and how your husband felt about you, you know, any time you tried to sort of exercise yourself in public space or work. How did you navigate that? And, and is that, you know, by this time, were you starting to think about maybe, um, you know, social things that you, you wanted to engage in? Yes, there were many things that I did want to get involved as the children got older. And, um, I suppose to keep me occupied because I couldn't go out. We didn't have money to socialise, but um, because I couldn't get involved outside the children, that's when I had two more children because I was so full of energy and um, wanting to do things <clears throat> that I seen having another two children was a good way to come out it. <laughs> uh, and that's why I relate and empathise with you know, mothers in third world countries, women who aren't educated and they keep having children because that's the way they feel fulfilled. And that was the way I was brought up to be fulfilled. But when I did, when the younger children started getting older and I did start wanting to get out and do something because, you know, I was still under 50, I still had all this energy and that, um, it did cause ripples in the relationship mm. and gradually that relationship fell apart which I'm very grateful for now, as hard as it was back then, after 30 years of just being a wife and a mother, and that's all I was, just a wife and a mother. Mm. Um, I was pretty at a loose end and devastated, but so grateful now because that's when I was able to fulfil another part of my life, I suppose. Yeah. And, yeah. So what, what was it that first 
ignited you and made you feel like you had to do something? I I went to Timor in my early 60s as a volunteer, something that I'd always wanted to do as a little girl going to Sunday school, the missionary position, you know, going overseas and being a missionary. <laughs> that sounded very dirty, <laughs> June Norman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, I, so I thought being a missionary as a child sounded like a wonderful, exciting thing to do. So, and of course, that went by the board. But then when I had the freedom, uh, I decided to go and work in a third world country and I went to Timor. And up until I went, I had no idea of uh, our government's participation in what happened over there. Wow. And I was so upset, disgusted, um, overwhelmed because I, I was there for three and a half years. I absolutely adore the Timorese people. I learned so much from them. They gave me so much um, encouragement and strength. And I just felt that I was coming back after three and a half years to a country where I couldn't relate to most people that I left behind. Mm. To find out that our government was arranging in about a month's time to go to... Shoalwater Bay, where we were having what they call Talisman Sabre, uh, which was bringing 25 US military out here to train our military to be the aggressors in a war. Yeah, and which for our listeners, money. if they don't know, that happens every two years. There's a interoperability training. So you went up there? Yes. in 2005 for the first one, because what made me so upset and angry they were calling them war games mm. and it was like waving a red flag at a bull mm-hmm. how could they dare call war a game i just spent three years in Timor, I wasn't part of the war the war was over before I got there but picking up the pieces with the women and children there was so devastating and I, I felt I had to take action and I found out Friends of the Earth in Brisbane were taking a bus up Mm-hmm. to it. So I went up there. That was actually my first arrest, my first action, my first arrest. <laughs> and uh, it's just gone on from there. So a really beautiful little loop back of the way the universe sets things up is uh, last, no, 2015, we were at the G20 together um, with the Climate Guardian Angels, of which you were one of them. And I was doing police liaising and one of the police officers uh, pointed to you and said, I know that woman. I know her. What's what's her name? And I said, June. And he said, June, I arrested her at the Talisman Sabre Games. (laughs) And he said you were absolutely inspirational and amazing and he was so honoured that he was maybe going to have to arrest you again. (laughs) Of course, as we know, that ended up with the police driving us to the pub, um, which was great. (laughs) A disappointment for some of you who really wanted to get arrested. (laughs) Yes. It was a hard day of trying to get arrested that day. We just could not make it happen despite all of the special police orders and zones and we breached the red zone and still no arrest. Um, but, you know, we did put climate on the agenda and on the front page of the papers, and, and that was a very beautiful thing. So you were also um, one of the first people to be arrested for protesting coal seam gas and fracking. 
And so it seems to me you went from being, you know, sort of not not engaged straight to the direct action end, June. <laughs> were, you lis- were you listening to alternative music at the time is the question on everyone's lips. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I suppose, listening to the beat of the drum that a inspired me to do something and stand up and be counted for once in my life and not just sit back and accept mm. and and to um, I need to be active that personality I've got uh, I feel I um, I just like meeting the people that I meet at these actions mm. and and they you know they're just so full of life and inspiration and and their main desire is to protect our world and our people. So you also um, you do these amazing, very long walks. Now we we walked a lot in Paris and talked about the other walking that you did, and it's quite appealing to me now after spending time with you and discussing that. And one of the things that you you spoke of was how well it's a, a feat of physical endurance. Uh, it's a, a chance for you to reflect and meditate on what um, motivates you and inspires you and what's important to you. And I guess, you know, um, for many activists a lot younger than you, uh, it's it's hard work. Sometimes, you know, empathetic people get very depressed uh, because we face such sort of Goliath, David and Goliath battles and um, people burn out. And I just wonder what it is that keeps you going and keeps you so incredibly energised and strong. And and if you could just talk a little bit about how you motivate and sustain yourself in this kind of work. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose mainly I get motivated by seeing the big picture um, not getting too, I suppose that's been the biggest lesson for me, is not get too caught up in the here and now and the little, the little things. Mm. That when the little things that keep coming up and putting you, <laughs> you know, giving you hassles and making it difficult for you, um, to try and let them go and look at what the bigger picture is, and um, then the bigger picture seems to bring it all together and make the all the little incidentals not so, you know, hard and difficult. Yeah. So what what how do you how do you cope with that when, you know, if we we look at the big picture, I guess the glass can be half empty or half full. Um, I guess I'm curious as to you know, all the things that you've seen in your life and all of the issues that we are currently fighting against and trying to change and transform, What is there one particular area that just sort of, you know, really has the capacity to, to kind of break your heart a little bit where you have to sort of regroup yourself? Because, you know, I think a lot of people who listen, um, they see activists uh, doing this work and always sort of forging ahead, but quite often it's it's very emotionally devastating work um, because of the, the kinds of issues that we work with. Uh, what one is it that sort of really gets to you and, and that you find, you know, sort of you have to really focus yourself not to sort of fall into a black hole over? 
Um, I suppose it's, it's a bit ironic, I suppose, Sam, that you brought this up now because a couple of weeks ago I did almost fall into a big black hole because I just got overwhelmed with all of the the things that are happening now. And, and it's not just one thing, it's everything. It's the environment, it's the um, financial situation, it's the refugees, it's the Indigenous people that really, really um, brings me, you know, to tears when I think about what we're doing to our own people here mm. in Australia. And I suppose what happens when... And, and then family issues. I suppose it's the family, personal issues that I find the hardest to, to deal with mm. um, because it's so close and so emotional. Um, I'm not too sure whether I'm answering this question or not, but w- with it is now... Um, I suppose my big thing is, what am I leaving my grandchildren? I'm at the stage in my life where, you know, I've lived in a beautiful country, in a beautiful world, seen so much, never really, you know, had any serious hardship. Um, but that, that looks like disappearing. And how yeah. can I, with a clean conscience, leave this, my, my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren without doing something, and, you know, it's not just my grandchildren, it's all the young children who are so innocent and um, not a part of this whatsoever. Yeah. I suppose that's what brings me back to, well, I just have to keep going because mm. I can't allow um, allow them to have to bear the whole burden of this, whatever it is that's going to happen to us if we don't. Yeah. It's like a balance somewhere. It's that really fine line of the children and, and future generations being both the motivator and also sometimes the the idea that brings you to the edge for me. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. It's both something that pulls me back together but it's also something that breaks me down is – you know that it's it's going to get a lot worse, and it's going to get a lot worse all over the world. And Australia has been fairly protected, um, I guess, as you say, but it's coming our way, uh, one way or another. Um, you know, and when you look around and you you know, like June up in Newcastle, what was really amazing uh, about the campsite w- that we were at is to just see so many amazing young people uh, there. You know, there was a lot of faces I've never seen before in Newcastle and incredibly kind of millennial-aged uh, individuals stepping up all the way through to, you know, there are pensioners and, of course, Bill Ryan, who was with me on the train tracks, a 94-year-old World War Two veteran. Um, but I wonder, you know, often younger uh, generations are sort of perceived as not being engaged and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see that. I, what I saw at Newcastle was... Absolutely what inspires me to stay in the game is this whole bunch of courageous young people coming up. I just I wonder what your experience uh, with the Climate Angels and with your general activism is of that generation that are often sort of misconstrued as somehow not caring. Um, what have you seen over, over the last couple of years in your experiences? Oh, look, it's these young people saying that has been a great inspiration for me because 
um, you know, they are maligned. They, they're, you know, if they're dreadlocked or, or um, just, they're just seen as being wasting their time, wasting taxpayers' money time. And I just get so, so angry um, because I know how hard these young people work. And, you know, they forgo their career. They forgo, you know, buying a car to give up time to go and do these things for a better future for everyone. They are so selfless. They are so amazing. And it upsets me sometimes because they do these things and they're not taken seriously. Mm. But when I do them, people stop in their tracks. Mm. Um, and, you know, I get all the credence. I get all the, the um, bravo, good on you, all of this. And I just, I just feel as though it's these people, these young ones that need that. But if it takes me at my age to get them what they want and they're trying to get, well, I'm all out there mm. to support them because um, they're, they're the ones that, that actually know and they're the ones that have got the academic knowledge to do things that I I can't. And they're the ones that can speak and, and articulate mm. and... Yeah, they are my inspiration. They're some of my greatest inspiration. But also, it's inspiring me now, more so than ever before, how many people coming up to my age that are starting to get involved. Mm. The people I talk to at Newcastle who have never done anything before, they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and they've never stepped up before. And I think, thank goodness, because... Where there's, we're broadening the, the the gap between the really young ones and the really old ones, and it's those the in between ones that I feel have been you know head in the sand about these things, and now they're not they're speaking out. So I'm encouraged with that, and I'm also encouraged with I've been involved in a few um, very big law cases, land. Um, court cases mm. and the barristers and the silks that are coming out and, and pro bono um, four weeks of their time to run these cases, they also inspire me. Yeah. Because, or encourage me, not so much inspire me, but encourage me. Yes, we're, we're really getting every breath of people on, you know, on board and taking notice. Yeah, I think it's it's such an important thing to acknowledge the legal support uh, provided to activists free of charge, uh, both in Victoria and across Australia. Uh, for someone like myself with, you know, children and bills to pay and all those things, and I'm sure it's the same for everybody else, uh, it makes it so much easier to do the work that we do when you know that you have legal support, you know. Uh, it really does make a huge difference. So... If you are in the legal profession, I encourage you to uh, get involved with an activist group and support their work. So uh, when things come to court, either through actions or through law, um, you know, suits, um, there is support there from the legal fraternity. And we should also support them. They've been protesting recently uh, against cuts to legal aid, which is just ridiculous. Uh, so June, where to from here for you after Newcastle? Because... Um, 
you know, it was a, it was a huge event and it showed across the world the power of people to shut down the fossil fuel industry. I guess I'm wondering if you have any um, plans for doing any more walks or anything in particular that, that's coming up for you in, in your work. At the moment, I'm not planning anything now, Sam, at the moment. <laughs> um, I'm just biding my time probably till the rest of this year and I'm sure something will come up. There are walks happening, mm. um, but I don't have the availability to go to them at the moment. Um, but I will just continue doing the little bits on the side and I suppose having fun, loving life. Yeah, enjoying this beautiful, beautiful country we have. Even though I can say in Canberra now it's absolutely beautiful weather, it's frightening that it's so beautiful. Yeah, um, <laughs> because it's usually not this warm at this time of the year, and that's a, a little bit of scary. But yeah, I, I you know I will get involved in something maybe later on in this year, and hopefully go back to East Timor for one of the children that I had to do with when she was 10 and 12 in a Northmead. She's getting married later this year and I would love to go back to her wedding. So that's a bit of a priority at the moment. And that's amazing is the relationships and the bonds that are formed over the years of actually doing uh, the kind of deep community work and uh, movement building that you've been involved in. June Norman, you are an inspiration. It's been a pleasure to... uh, potentially get arrested with you both here and overseas. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. I should, I should mention, Sam, I forgot, I shouldn't have forgot. On Monday, um, the Climate Guardian Angels are in court in Sydney because of our action at Narrabri against the coal seam gas. Ah, as in next Monday? Okay. Next Monday. So, listeners, to be thinking of us and let's hope the judge is very uh, understanding and... Yes. generous to us. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, if the listeners uh, that want to follow that court case from the action uh, that was taken up at the Pilliga uh, by the Climate Guardian Angels who were arrested for the first time in Australia uh, during that action, they'll be in court next Monday, including the wonderful June Norman. And uh, you can go to their Facebook page, Climate Guardian Angels, and probably follow what's going on via that Uh, June, I hope to see you soon uh, on the front lines and uh, thank you for joining and sharing your experiences with myself and our listeners today. You are an absolute living legend. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. See you later, June. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. And that was June Norman, uh, activist, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and absolutely proving that age is no barrier to getting involved. And it's actually really wonderful to have generations uh, from June Norman's age down to, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds learning and supporting each other at these kind of mass actions as we did both in Paris and at the G20 and again at Break Free. Uh, If you want to learn more about the Climate Guardian Angels or June Norman, you can probably find her on Facebook uh, or contact Brisbane Friends of the Earth office and they can put you in contact with her if you uh, would like to know more or get involved with some of the work that she's been doing. You've been listening to Dirt Radio. I'm about to uh, run out of the studio to Friends of the Earth. 
I do believe Black Block is up next with Viv Marlowe, hopefully. I haven't seen her, her in the hallway yet, but I'm sure she's around. Um, have a great day and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.